0: Welcome to this week's energy show. Now, the general consensus is that there is a climate emergency, global warming, global climate change, whatever you want to call it. It's It looks like it's happening. Now, candidly, it's there's still not 100% consensus of the problem, of the cause and the solutions, but you know, we're in the upper 90s as far as people and scientists and politicians who think that there's a big problem there. So, if there is an emergency, and, and for people who don't believe in man-made climate change, yeah, you don't have to listen to the show, but if there is an emergency, what can we do about it? Well, this week, we're going to be talking about something called Project Drawdown. Now, it's a plan to reverse the increase of CO2 in the atmosphere. Not just slow down the emissions, but reverse the trend of, of, of these emissions so that we can reverse global warming. You know, We're over 400 parts per billion of CO2 in the atmosphere right now, it used to be a hundred. So we're looking at somehow getting that number down by lower emissions. And also, you know, there's other things like sequestration that we can do. So the key to this project drawdown is finding a way to reduce Every source of CO2 in the atmosphere so that gradually the concentration in the atmosphere is reduced. Now, there's all kinds of other issues about, you know, are we at a tipping point and is this going to accelerate? Is it going to go a straight line? Are there going to be other sources of emissions like melting permafrost or the warmer oceans are going to be releasing more dissolved CO2? I'm not really sure about that. Those are other big problems. But really, the fundamental focus of Project Drawdown is how can we reverse global warming? And this effort was led by a couple of environmentalists, Paul Hawken and Amanda Joy Ravenhill. And they said, let's try and figure this out. They just didn't figure it out themselves. They put together a team of over 200 scholars, scientists, policymakers, business leaders, and activists worldwide to basically assess and map and model the most substantive solutions that we can use to reduce global warming, or reduce the impact of global warming, reduce those CO2 emissions. And the results of the study were published in 2017. There's a book called uh, Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reduce global warming. Warming now, the challenge is it's a plan, and they've come up with eighty documented solutions to do this. It's not just one thing; you can't just do one thing. And there's eighty things that they looked at, not one silver bullet, but they looked at a lot of things, and not, not only things like solar and plant-based diets, but you know some less intuitive things, and we'll go into that. So the framework they use it's a good framework. They rank the solutions. By the amount of CO2 reduction that could be accomplished by a solution, you know, like better land use or plant-based diets or utility-scale solar. They looked at how much, how much CO2 would be reduced by those measures, and they measured the reductions in terms of gigatons of CO2. A gigaton is a billion tons of CO2. That's a lot. So not only did they look at the amount of CO2 that could be reduced, but they also looked at the total costs of these solutions over 30 years. So, you know, for example, things like solar and wind turbines, they looked at how much they could reduce the CO2, but then they also looked at how much it would cost to put in enough wind turbines and solar panels to accomplish those reductions. And then... They looked at the total savings over 30 years. How much cheaper would the electricity be if electricity were generated by wind and solar than conventional uh, energy generation, and you know, so in many cases for these solutions, there's actually savings. So although it may be expensive, you're going to be you're going to see some some cost savings. Obviously, there's a challenge because you have a tug of war between industries. You know, some industries are going to have to shift, and incumbent industries aren't going to kind of just say stand back and say, "Hey, like the coal industry, hey, we you know we don't need any more coal. We just want more wind and solar." That's not going to happen easily, but you're going to see some savings. So. The results of all these solutions—they looked at eighty. I don't know why they came up with eighty, but these were the—you know—based on their analysis, the eighty most practical, comprehensive solutions. They looked at them over thirty years, and over thirty years, it would reduce the CO two by a thousand thirty-four gigatons by twenty fifty. So it's thirty years. Cost twenty-nine trillion dollars, and it would save seventy-four trillion dollars. Now, this is kind of a summary of a lot of little, you know, 80 different activities, 80 different solutions, and these solutions are all over the map. So it's not like these are totally scientifically engineered, you know, totally budgeted solutions. There's some flexibility that's going to have to happen there, and these numbers aren't super firm, but it's a really, really good start. So I thought it would be good just to kind of look at the top 10 solutions that they ranked, and they ranked them based on the amount of atmospheric CO2 that can be reduced. You know, some of these are obvious, some of them are like, what the heck? So when you look at this list from 80, you know, the 80 options and I'm just looking at the top 10 right now. Number 1 is refrigerant management. Now that's not just taking good care of everybody's refrigerator. Basically this means that they're preventing old refrigerants. These are HFCs, halogen fluorocarbons. That's like what the coolant or the refrigerant that's used in a refrigerator. It's compressed, it gets hot. Then when it expands, it gets cold. So that refrigerates things. Run it in reverse. You can use a heat pump. But the number one saving is preventing old refrigerants from going into the atmosphere. So basically when that refrigerator that you're sick and tired of gets thrown into the dump, and then you know it's crushed, and the HFC, the fluorocarbons, escape from that. Those fluorocarbons are a thousand times worse than CO two for global warming. It's really, really bad. They're manufactured by they're they're man made, so you know it's an industrial process. But when they escape, when those old cars with air conditioners are scrapped, you got that car air conditioner. Those refrigerants get in the atmosphere. So number one is to Manage those old refrigerants. When you're scrapping your car, you suck that refrigerant out of the air conditioner, and then it can be destroyed, or you know, maybe even possibly reused. But it can be burned. It can be destroyed in a way that's not going to be terribly worse for the environment. So that was number one. Boy, that was a surprise. All right. And what's also interesting about this is it, we're looking at what the. Savings are in this case. There's a net cost because we have to really change the process by which we're recovering, we're avoiding these refrigerants from escaping into the atmosphere. So this one has a nine hundred billion dollar cost, nine hundred two billion dollars over thirty years. Um, that's because every junkyard, every dump, every recycled piece of uh, refrigeration equipment would have to have go through some kind of recycling process of the refrigerant. Yeah, scrap the metal, melt it down, but you got to get that refrigerant out. Okay. Number two, big solution, onshore wind turbines. Wind is probably the cheapest way. I mean, wind and utility-scale wind and utility-scale solar, cheapest way to generate electricity. So that's number two. On the list, it would reduce the atmospheric CO2 by 84.6 gigatons, billion tons. And it has a pretty good net savings. So the, the cost is about $1,225 billion dollars. So it's 1.2 trillion, and it would have a savings of 7.4 trillion. That's pretty good. So that, that's an obvious one. All right, number three. There's another one. It's kind of bizarre. You, you know, don't really expect it. Reducing. Food waste: a third of the food that's produced, the f- third of the food that we grow, or the third of the the, the meat that comes off of the animals that, that we grow for food, a third of it is wasted. It's thrown out. It's discarded even during production. You know, you might have some a crooked carrot, and it's not going to fit into one of those bags at the supermarket, so you, they they throw those out. So by avoiding. A third of the food waste, basically, we can improve the efficiency of our whole food chain or our agriculture, and that's going to save quite a bit. That's going to save 70.5 gigatons of CO2. Now, the cost and the savings for that, the, the, the project drawdown really wasn't able to evaluate that because kind of we don't know how we're, we're going to do it these are some of the things that worry me when we don't really have a a number on it. It means we haven't really figured out how to do it yet. So these are kind of questionable things. Okay. Number four, a plant rich diet. So basically we're talking about, you know, more of a vegetarian diet as opposed to a vegetarian and a meat diet. A fifth of the emissions are caused by our meat-based diets. Now, you know, I'm not exactly sure where some of these numbers come from, but that 20% of the emissions out there are caused by the fact that we've got an agricultural system that's designed around raising cows and poultry and pigs and things like and, and you know, maybe even fish. So, by avoiding those industries, by basically having the protein and the calories in the grain and then the crops that we raise be consumed directly instead of going into an animal and then we're, we're slaughtering the animal for food. We use tremendously less fossil fuel energy than we are for just you know having a pure plant-based diet. So the advantage is less energy for plant-based diets because the grain, the beans, it's consumed directly by human beings instead of those grains and beans and corn going into the animals and then the animals have to consume that, they have to grow, and then we're having the protein from there. So So, that's a pretty significant one. 66 gigatons of CO2 would be saved. And once again, we're not exactly sure how we're going to do that. So, there's no real dollar amount to implement that or the savings. We don't know what that is yet. Okay. Number five, tropical forests. By eliminating the destruction of tropical forests, by eliminating burning forests, kind of keeping the carbon in the trees, we're able to save quite a bit. It's much better than actually growing certain crops. So, what we really want to do is Instead of burning forests, we want to have more forests because the forests are absorbing CO2, it stays in the leaves in the wood, and also the trees are also absorbing CO2 from the atmosphere and and turning that into the the structure of the, the tree and they're also generating oxygen. So that's all good. So that was number five. Number six. Uh, number six and seven are kind of interesting. Number six is educating girls to reduce population growth and this is kind of focused on women and girls. And number seven is family planning for women and girls. So both of these are directed towards the possibility or the, the approach of reducing population and getting more women into the workforce so that they're they're, they're basically, you know, these people are a tremendous resource and they're going to be more productive. So it's a popular reducing population growth and and really improving the efficiency or productivity of our society. All right. Number eight, solar farms. Ah, That that one's obvious. I'm I'm glad that solar made it onto the top 10. Solar farms for utility power generation. Utility scale solar is one of the cheapest way, along with wind, to generate electricity. It's going to save about 37 gigatons of uh, carbon dioxide. And this is kind of interesting. It's got a really good payback. It's actually a negative cost. In other words, it's cheaper to build these plants than it is to, you know, build fossil fuel plants. And then you're looking at a five trillion dollar savings. Number ten is rooftop solar. I skipped over number nine, but rooftop solar is very similar. It's it's really cheap way of generating electricity. It's obvious. It's easy to implement. It's very cost effective. Um, and once again, we've got really good savings there. Not quite as much savings as as utility scale solar farms. Twenty four point six gigatons with rooftop solar compared to 37 gigatons with solar farms but still pretty substantial all right i skipped over number 9 because it's one of those kind of who what the heck what is this called it's called Silvo pasture. Now, silvo pasture is an ancient practice that integrates trees and pastures into a single system for raising livestock. So, one way of looking at this is just kind of imagine instead of cows grazing over big ranch lands and fields, the cows are grazing where there's trees. So, you've got trees, trees are sequestering carbon. That's really good. It's an old practice. It's not something that we've adopted recently, but um, it, it does change. If we are able to change the way we raise livestock, it can be a pretty significant savings. Okay. We talked about the top 10. Now, what about some of the more obvious and popular solutions that you might have thought about that would be higher in the list, but they're really not that high in the list? So I'm just going to kind of dig into... You know, items 11 through 80 on the list. A bunch of them are on the electricity generation side. There's geothermal power, which is kind of, is number 18 on the list. It's a good idea. It provides power base load, so it cranks at nighttime and daytime. But it's more expensive than, than wind and solar, and it's really tough to sight. I mean, you need s- certain locations. It's not going to be close into where people live. It's going to be in remote, geologically active volcano areas. So uh, t- it's not going to work everywhere. Nuclear energy generation, nuclear electricity generation. No-brainer. We've been doing it for 50 years. Lots of potential, but it's, once again, more expensive than some of the renewables. And the impediment, really, is it's not socially or economically feasible in many locations. We've been trying to build new nuclear power plants here in the U.S. Nothing's gone in in, like, the last 20 years. We're almost ready for the first couple. And meanwhile, we're retiring a lot of plants. Why? Because they're just not that economically feasible anymore. All right, 22 Offshore wind turbines. Now, you're accustomed and familiar with the wind turbines that are going on in windy areas onshore, you know, in in, in valleys, near mountains where there's a lot of steady wind. Well, there's a lot of steady wind offshore also. The tricky thing about offshore wind generation is we haven't really gotten it down in price that much. It's really expensive. It's expensive to get the power from. 10 miles off the, the coast or five miles off the coast into the coastal areas. And it's just, these systems are just a lot more expensive. So that hasn't taken off so fast. All right, number 25, concentrated solar. This was really big 15 years ago. But because the price of uh, regular solar panels has come down so much and we have a lot of land, the need to concentrate these solar plants, make a smaller, you know, smaller geographic footprint where we're generating more power. It's just not there and it's just not really taken off as much. All right. Here's one that kind of surprised me, number 26, electric vehicles. I was surprised that this wasn't higher than the transportation category. The reason why it wasn't higher is the analysis assumed that worldwide electric vehicle ownership would be 16%. In 2050. Now, that was the assumption they made. And, you know, I think car manufacturers weren't really fully behind this three years ago or so when this plan was really put together. But now I see that the trend is a lot faster. The battery costs are continuing to be reduced very quickly. The car costs are lower. So, you know, when you look at a cheaper car to manufacture, not as many moving parts, and then you got lower battery costs, they're high now, but they're coming down. It means that they're going to be more affordable. There's also going to be a better charging infrastructure. That's all still going in. And the car companies are on board. So I fully expect that the whole concept of using... This applies also for trucks also, but it's going to move up in terms of the, the list because we are emitting a lot of greenhouse gases from burning fossil fuels for transportation, for cars, for trucks, you know, also for ships and planes, which kind of leads me to a couple of the next one, ships. We can reduce the greenhouse gases from ships, not by using a different fuel, because you know, really you need a really concentrated fuel to get that ship from, you know, one continent to another and sales not a good option. I mean, that was okay in the 18th century, but not in the 21st century. So we're looking at improvements in ships, and the reason why it's number 32 on the list is because these are efficiency improvements. These are better engines, more streamlined ships, less air resistance, and really doing everything we can to kind of make those ships move from from continent to continent without as much fuel. Trucks, kind of the same thing, but I'm putting trucks in the same category as electric vehicles. I'm I'm pretty confident that we'll be seeing more and more electric electrified truck transportation as companies are announcing both pickup trucks and long haul trucks that are electric pickup trucks i can see because you know in delivery trucks the postal service things like that the long haul trucks are going to be tricky to do because you know you need a lot of fuel density once again and if you want to dedicate a quarter of the payload of the truck to a battery that ends up being pretty expensive to kind of haul around but we're going to see progress on that worldwide, road freight accounts for 6% of emissions. They're going to be more efficient, just fundamentally more efficient, and I'm pretty confident that they're going to be electrified. Airplanes. I'm kind of coming back to the transportation category. That's number 43. The carbon reduction that we're looking at airplanes, five gigatons of carbon dioxide, it's not going to happen by making these things electric. That's kind of far away, I think. You know, conceptually, we can do it, and there's some tests out there, but we're, we're far away. It's really making the, the airplanes more efficient, the jets more efficient, better engines, better combustion processes. Maybe they go a little bit slower. We don't have the Concorde anymore. It burned incredible enough in a fuel, but that's going to improve. All right. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that go on in buildings. We're talking about solar hot water systems. That's number 41. Now, solar hot waters have been a technology that's been around a real long time, and it works really well to heat water. What's happened actually in the U.S. is because of photovoltaic systems and also heat pumps. It's not continuing to grow as quickly. But in most of the rest of the world, I mean, the first thing that people want to do is they want to have some hot water, and they can put plunk down a couple of solar thermal panels, and you know a l- little bit of electricity, and those systems can generate the hot water they need for bathing and, and cooking. So that's good. That's number forty-one. Number forty-two, right after that, are heat pumps. I think solar hot water has got some growth, but not incredible. Whereas heat pumps number 42 that that goes into buildings and city energy use heat pumps are really taken off gotten way more efficient they got way cheaper and because we have cheap electricity using that electricity for heating and and cooling is actually something practical as opposed to you know we used to just have coal and then we had oil and then we had natural gas to heat up a building now we can heat that building with a heat pump and the electricity for that is also produced from renewable sources so that's got a lot of potential there Let's see what else. Oh, all right. So a couple more. Energy storage, both for distributed and for utilities. So this is kind of towards the bottom of the list. Number 77, energy storage for distributed generation. That's, you know, each building putting it in. They don't really have costs and savings for that yet. And then just right next to it, number 70, actually number 77 also, is energy storage for utilities. They're kind of lumping energy storage for distributed generation. That's customer-owned, utilities, and also grid flexibility. They, They kind of have all that towards the bottom of the list got a tremendous amount of potential they haven't really figured out what the savings and the costs are going to be for that but it's on the list okay now we talked about some of the, the ones that are like you know you might have heard of that are kind of obvious got some wacko ones i'm not not really wacko but some things that you wouldn't expect clean cook stoves 40 percent of humanity cook with wood charcoal dung or coal Almost all the rest by fossil fuels. Now you can burn those things more efficiently, but more significantly we can start using electricity for those stoves. Electricity induction stoves are really terrific. Number 24, improved rice cultivation. Boy, that one surprised me. Rice is a staple of half the world's population. It's one-fifth of the calories consumed by humanity. But unfortunately, it creates 10% of the greenhouse gases from agriculture because rice paddies produce methane as the plants decompose. By doing it better, we can save. Number 36, alternative cement. Now, cement manufacturing is 5% of global emissions. So cement is the main ingredient in concrete. Basically, you take cement, you mix it with sand or rocks, and you get concrete. There's a bunch of new techniques to reduce the emissions in concrete and cement manufacturing, so that's significant. 55 and 56, household recycling and industrial recycling. Yeah, They're on the list because it's fundamentally, it fundamentally uses a lot less energy to reuse materials and produce new ones. And the last one is on the list is high-speed rail transport. Good idea... Very costly and very tough policy. So some economies, like in China, they can kind of get those through pretty quickly, but a lot of times in the U.S., there's so many competing interests and so many costs to that that these things aren't just, you know, they're just not happening. All right. Just kind of wrapping up conclusions. We've got a practical roadmap for these solutions. Obviously, it's very expensive and it's going to take a long time, but the savings are clearly greater than the cost. Now, my personal opinion, we're going to have to live with global warming, um, you know, for our foreseeable lifetimes. It's not clear to me, unfortunately, that we can uh, immediately reverse the situation. So we've got to try everything. But I am very encouraged by progress in some areas, particularly the areas that are most obviously economically beneficial. Because if the economics are good, there's going to be new industries cropping up like solar, like wind, like plant-based foods that are really kind of taking off. And that's popular. The ones that are going to really require changes to the way that our political system is designed or our society, the way we live, that's going to be really tough. All right. That's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. And if you miss any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcast.